previously on the Crystal Cave Murders. On Saturday, July 31st, 1982, shortly before noon, Karen and Bridget were last seen standing with their bicycles at the crossroads near the hamlet of Kobelwald by a family that drove past in their car. No one had seen them since, or at least reported having seen them. When they did not show up at their home the same evening, the parents reported them missing at around 9pm. Around the same time, the same family returning home from their day trip noticed two abandoned bicycles a few meters past the intersection, leaning against the trees by the roadside. They thought this was a bit odd, but when they arrived at their home a few minutes later, no one gave the observation any further thought, and they all went to bed. And while they were sound asleep and the police set out to look for the teenagers along their assumed route, yet another remarkably strange thing occurred. Early on Sunday morning, August 1st, the cave guide on duty and his companion, both members of the Alpstein Cave Club, noticed that the padlock that secured the iron gate at the cave entrance was missing. They briefly inspected the in and outside of the caves, but could not see anything amiss, nor did they notice any traces of an intruder, or could they find the missing padlock. They were not particularly puzzled, because break-ins had happened before. In some cases, intruders had knocked off stalactites or collected other minerals from within the caves. Not so this time, because only the padlock was missing. Usually, a broken or forced opened padlock was left at the scene or on the ground nearby, but in this case, it was simply missing. They concluded that this was maybe just a faked break in as those two had occurred previously. They immediately drove to the main responsible of the caves, reported the incident, and swiftly returned to the caves, where a visiting party was already waiting, with a brand new padlock. This was absolutely necessary, because safety regulations required that once having entered the caves, guides had to lock the gate from the inside, to keep occasional and not previously registered visitors from entering. Since at that time none of the three men were yet aware of the two missing teenagers, it was not surprising that no connection between the break-in and the girl's disappearance was established. It was only much later that those two incidents were linked and led to all sorts of speculations. My name is Rudolf Eisler, and this is The Search, episode 2 of The Crystal Cave Murders, an investigative true crime podcast by Playground Media Productions. 
All interviews were recorded in German and translated into English. All voiceovers were done by speakers that are not related to the case. All individuals mentioned in the podcast must be considered innocent and cannot be prosecuted or convicted as the 30-year statute of limitation for murder in Switzerland was reached in 2012. The presumption of innocence applies. Episode 1 we covered the circumstances that led the two teenage girls, Karen Gattica and Bridget Meyer, to embark on the three-day bike adventure that brought them to the crossroads by the Crystal Caves in Switzerland's idyllic Rhine Valley. We heard of the family that saw them standing there around noon on July the 31st, and the girl's parents that reported them missing when they failed to return home late that evening. If you have not listened to episode 1, I highly recommend you do so. On Sunday morning, August 1st, the police started to search the area and soon came across the two bicycles. But now they were standing side by side on their stands at the crossroads and not where the family had noticed them upon their return the previous evening. But since the family had not yet reported their observation, the investigators were not aware of this. Again, it was only much later that this inconsistency led to the conclusion that someone must have moved the bicycles during the night. What considerably puzzled the investigators was that the girls' personal belongings were still attached to the bicycles, mainly their clothes and sleeping bags, but also Karen's pocket camera. The very same camera that was used by a stranger that took their picture two days earlier. The camera was confiscated by the police and the film developed. One of the photographs shows the two girls standing on a green meadow wearing jeans and t-shirts. Both smiling, happy and carefree, with Bridget resting her elbow on Karen's shoulder. Soon this picture, along with a portrait of each girl, was published in all major Swiss newspapers. And with it, the investigators request for any witness but above all, the unknown photographer to step forward. Alone the response was silence. On Monday, the police intensified their search efforts, starting of course by the crossroads and at the same time set out questioning most everybody living in the vicinity. They were certain to find witnesses that had seen the girls or had made some sort of observation. But their efforts led to virtually nothing. According to an official statement, the investigators were convinced that they were dealing with an accident especially because of the nearby steep and treacherous terrain in the forest and around the Crystal Caves. 
This, they said, would explain a possible fall from one of the many rock ledges in case the girls had decided on a spontaneous hike. A theory that was dropped a few days later when it became quite evident what many had suspected but did not dare say. Something horrific must have happened. On Tuesday, August 3rd, the father of the family and driver of the car that almost hit the teenagers on the crossroads learned about the missing girls for the first time when he took his Toyota to the garage in the morning. Upon returning home, he informed his wife, who hurried outside and shared their observations with a policeman leading a search party near their house. The officer made a handwritten note, which was later filed away. Several months passed before she received the summons to provide a detailed account of her observations and sign her testimony. Having no other options and no promising lead, the police intensified their search efforts day by day, soon including the fire brigade, divers, a helicopter and a great many locals and volunteers. A good 150 people strong, it was by far the largest search party the region had ever witnessed. But according to several participants, it was far from being a well-organized and systematic procedure. Search parties moved more or less randomly around, scouting the terrain without a clear concept, contaminating possible clues and evidence. Puzzling in this context is also that when briefed by the investigators, the volunteers were repeatedly instructed there was absolutely no need to scout the surroundings by the crystal caves. A. Because it was too dangerous and b. because the police had already done so, even with dogs, and had found nothing. Simultaneously, investigators once more reached out to the people living in the vicinity, knocking on everybody's door and distributing leaflets. But this too yielded no immediate results. What it did initiate was of course that Karen's and Bridget's disappearance instantly became the talk of the village. It did not take long until the news also reached a 40-year-old engineer that lived alone in a house a mere 100 meters from the intersection. He contacted the police and informed them about the observations he had made on the Saturday when the girls disappeared. He explained that he stood at the open kitchen window which offered a perfect view towards the intersection, peeling beans just around the time the girls were last seen standing there. I called the now 82-year-old man still living in the very same house, and he without hesitation agreed to meet me for an interview at his home. When I pulled up on the gravel driveway in front of his modest but charming two-story house a few days later, a grey-haired man in rather good physical shape was already expecting me. We entered and sat down at the table in the living room. After a brief introduction and explanation what my podcast was about, he led me to the kitchen, opened the window and showed me the view towards the crossroads while recounting the observations he had made on the Saturday. That's 
It was a grey and somewhat misty day. Nothing like today. There might even have been some fog, I'm not sure, but it was certainly not a clear day. Between 11 and 12 I was standing in the kitchen, peeling and steaming beans while looking out an open window. I'm sure it was open because of the heat and steam from the cooking. Around 11.30 I noticed a grey car standing at the crossroads for approximately five minutes. It was not directly on the crossroads, but rather on the small parking area immediately next to it. Since this as such was nothing exciting, I did not observe it all the time, and I cannot tell you when and in what direction it drove off. It just was not there anymore when I looked again after five minutes. In any case, I didn't see a single person, certainly not two girls. I also did not hear voices or arguments. No door slamming, no braking, no engine sound. Nothing that made me suspicious. And just to make it perfectly clear, while standing at the kitchen window, he observed a dark grey car stationed at the crossroads for a few minutes shortly before noon. Throughout this time he did not notice any individuals either near the car at the intersection or on any of the roads leading to it. Additionally, he remained unaware of any specific sounds associated with the car, such as doors closing and certainly not any noise indicative of an accident. I then asked him if he remembered seeing the family's dark blue Toyota Crown drive by, considering they reported being there at that time. He responded negatively explaining that he wasn't constantly positioned at the open window. He mentioned having had lunch in the living room with his father, who resided next door and often joined him for Saturday lunches. Given these circumstances, it was highly probable that he didn't witness the family encountering the girls, as that would have been an event lasting only a few seconds. He then proceeded to recall his schedule for the subsequent day, the Sunday following the girl's disappearance. The next day on Sunday, I got up at four o'clock in the morning because I wanted to go on a hiking tour at the Santis, a well-known mountain range about an hour's drive from my home. To get there, I had to take my car and route via the crossroads into the forest. As I passed the intersection, I noticed two abandoned bicycles standing parallel on their stands right by the intersection. If they had saddlebags and travel gear attached, I cannot recall anymore. I just drove past them. But I remember thinking that it was a bit strange, especially at this time of day, as it was still very early. When I returned from the hike in the evening, the bicycles were not there anymore. At that point, I did not know what had happened and that the police had found a confidant that I read about the two missing girls in the newspaper. Soon after, the police showed up at my door and I reported what I had witnessed. His observations were of course not exclusive information for the police, but also quickly shared among friends and locals at the village pub. Whether what he observed happened before or after the family saw the girls remains uncertain to this day. And despite him having not noticed any people near the vehicle, the police suspected that the girls might have entered a car, leaving their bikes at the crossroads. But with what destination, 
the only site worth visiting in the area were, of course, the Crystal Caves. The Crystal Caves are located at the foot of the Alpstein mountain range in the steep and dense forest just above the hamlet of Kobelwald. Whilst repairing and cleaning the caves in 1982, wonderful crystal treasures were found. The atmosphere of the caves, calcite crystals, the stalactites and stalagmites, the rushing water as well as the unique acoustics and subtle lighting are a source of great fascination. Now and then the caves could only be visited in the presence of a cave guide. Those were either volunteers from the village or members of the Cave Guide Association. As an easily accessible attraction, the Crystal Caves are one of a kind in Switzerland and perfectly suited as an object of study for natural history students or to be enjoyed by tourists. Combined with the leisurely hike in the forest, they make for an ideal destination for school trips or a day out with the family. In 1982, the entrance to the caves was protected by an iron gate with a solid key padlock. The keys to that padlock were in possession of the head of the cave association, and some more were distributed among the several cave guides. The cave gate was accessed via a set of steps descending from the gravel track that passed by the caves about 10 meters above being the continuation of the forest track from the dance place leading towards the edge of the forest and an alternative parking area in Kobelwald for those who wish to walk to the caves from below. The caves are exactly 665 meters or 727 yards long and basically split in two sectors. Section 1 being the part open to the public with a footpath, installed lighting system and a total length of 128 meters or approximately 140 yards. Section 2, 537 meters or 587 yards, is only accessible to experts on organized expeditions and the permission by the cave authorities. It is therefore sealed off by yet a second but small locked iron gate. Who exactly did have a key to that second gate and where it was kept in 1982 could never be fully established. It is, however, of considerable importance as we will see in a later episode. The caves are officially closed to the public from September until April. But thanks to a friend I was fortunate enough to visit them along with a group of cave explorers from the Alpstein Cave Club. Needless to say that I stood out amidst the group when we gathered at the dance place on a rainy Sunday morning in March. Clad in my barber jacket and wellington boots, I observed the professionals putting on their snug sealed overalls, rubber gloves, boots and helmets. They meticulously inspected their lighting equipment and battery packs, studying laminated cave maps while discussing the upcoming expedition. 
My friend that had organized my participation advised me that it may be smart not to mention that I was here in connection with the Crystal Cave murders. This may only result in annoying questions and bad vibes, he warned me. So I pretended to be just a curious journalist and was happy that no one really cared about me as we walked down to the cave's entrance. Today there is a small visitor center at the entrance with a newly constructed wooden cabin-like building where visitors can buy drinks and snacks and sit at large wooden tables in the shelter of a covered terrace overlooking the forest with the stream and waterfall emerging from the caves below. After having collected my signed insurance release form and having taken a screenshot of my ID, Today's guide and president of the Alpstein Cave Club, a surprisingly young but less surprisingly slim and fit woman in her forties, addressed the participants, not by chance mainly looking at me. Okay everybody, please pay attention. First things first. It is strictly forbidden to take any artifacts from the caves. But you all know that. This, by the way, also includes any crystals that may be found lying on the floor. The fact that we've been given permission to enter today is an exception, so it goes without saying that if we get complaints, it was most likely the last time we were given the keys. So please stick to the rules. Do not touch anything with your hands because we always have bacteria that could have a detrimental effect on cave-dwelling animals. As you know, the caves are officially closed until Easter. This means that during the winter months, the caves are a host to animals usually not found within. Bats and mice, for example. Please remain aware of that. We will proceed in groups of three. If anyone does not wish to go beyond section one or return any time later, do let me know and I will walk you back to the entrance. Under no circumstances, turn on your own and without letting me know. The caves were discovered by a hunter in 1682. At that time, they were full of calcite crystals that were mined during the next two centuries. It's not exactly known for what purpose, a possibility being that they were used as glass for religious pictures, scientific use, or the production of medicine. Finally, in 1934, the caves were prepared and opened to the public. I was given a helmet and when we finally entered I was asked just how far inside I intended to go. I explained that I would go just as far as I felt comfortable and without being a hindrance to the rest of the group. Following the cave river and over a center step a short distance from the entrance we arrived at the first cavern, where the largest calcite deposits are situated. Entire sections of the wall are covered with white or grey, often glimmering crystals. Advancing further, a footbridge leads across a small lake, where lights reflect mysteriously on the water surface. 
Even further inside and past the waterfall, we reach the so-called calcite chasm. Here, large crystals remain embedded in protective clay for thousands of years and have therefore been wonderfully preserved. Since we were going slower than the other participants and because I asked my friend, who of course knew my interest was related to the murder case and not the stalactites, a multitude of questions, we soon lost contact to the group ahead of us. When we finally reached the end of section 1, I noticed the open iron gate that gave access to a narrow 12 meter long passage. Once again I was asked if I wanted to continue. I hesitated, pointed my torch in the direction of the dark hole, went down on my knees and started crawling in the water hoping that I would soon notice the lights of the preceding group, or at least some indication of the passage becoming less tight. Neither was the case. That was it. Suddenly I felt rather uneasy and developed the first signs of claustrophobia. I crawled backwards, relieved that no one was immediately following me and informed my companions that I would not go any further. They both smiled and the lady said, I thought so, and mind you, this is not even the most narrow section. She walked me back to the entrance and returned to join the others. Back at the entrance, I stepped onto the terrace, my pants drenched as I leaned against the wooden railing enjoying the perfect view. A profound sense of relief washed over me as I took in deep breaths of the fresh forest air. And as I turned my head, my gaze landed on two or three rusty iron posts, standing upright in the rugged terrain just beneath the terrace. The remnants of the former Hunter's Trail, now impassable because of its perilous nature. I must have been standing very close to the place where in September 1982, a weekend hiker, accompanied by a ten-year-old boy, halted abruptly, his senses tingling as he curiously inhaled the autumn breeze. An unfamiliar odor hung in the air. But the boy was oblivious to the scent and together they returned to the car and drove home. And yet the same hiker, driven by an insatiable curiosity, returned to that very same spot exactly one week later. This time he ventured alone. He followed the twisted hunter's trail past the cave entrance, relentlessly pursuing the source of the foul scent. Soon the journey led him to a chilling revelation that defied comprehension. A discovery so horrifying that it cast a long haunting shadow, not only over his own existence, but also over the lives of everybody residing near 
the crystal caves. Tune in to episode 3, The Discovery, to hear about the most bizarre circumstances that led to the discovery of the two bodies and the mysterious events that happened immediately after. And how, triggered by contradicting testimonies and dubious behaviors, a mystery unfolded while the police slowly came to realize that this case was unlike anything they were used to and clearly out of their league. Please do visit our website at thecrystalcavemurders.com for additional information, including maps, photographs, videos and even details on how to support the makers of this podcast. My name is Rudolf Eisler. I'm a documentary filmmaker and producer, and this was The Search. Episode 2 of The Crystal Cave Murders, an investigative true crime podcast brought to you by Playground Media Productions. Available on Apple Podcasts or almost any platform of your preference. <laughs>